go ahead and uh, say, I'll, I'll finish this conversation with you at the gospel class. That's what you'll do, you know? A little bit of time to get to know one another there. It's so great to see all of you here. Well, welcome, guys. Welcome. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. And if you brought your Bible today, go ahead and pull that out. We use it every week um, and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's what we're working from here. Um, we are in a teaching series right now um, in 1 Corinthians, which we have entitled on this board here, Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. And we're talking about it not in individual terms, but in communal terms, which is why we have these, this, uh, this art installation here of swallows, uh, which is uh, these... Uh, are, are they swallows? No, they're starlings. They're European starlings, guys. Come on. Get it. Oh, man. They're European starlings, guys. Uh, and these European starlings will move in step with, when they're, each one is moving in step with Christ, they create something beautiful in the world. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we say happens when a, a community of believers will, will lean into following Jesus and, and and God and trusting his word, it creates something beautiful like this art installation that we've pulled together here. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to be. We're talking about the peculiar wisdom of Christ, which is a, a really great title for this letter in particular because the Corinthian church had been writing Paul letters, asking him questions. Paul had been, had been hearing reports from people who had been in Corinth about what was going on in there, the circumstances they were experiencing. So he pens this, this letter in response to their questions the circumstances they were going into to address the subjects that are kind of under, uh, underlying these, these big, big things that they're experiencing. And, and we've called it peculiar wisdom because oftentimes his advice, his wisdom, it's a bit strange. It's a bit counterintuitive. It's like opposite what we might assume would be the appropriate response. And so we've been leaning into this peculiar wisdom that God has for the Corinthians, which is rooted in Paul's understanding of who Jesus is and what he did and what he's about. That's why it's the peculiar wisdom of Christ. And so today we continue in chapter 7 in this letter where Paul addresses the big subject of singleness, of singleness within, within this church, and, and particularly with how sing, about how single people, that's people who had once been married and, and people who had not yet been married, both of those, he has both those in mind, you'll see that in a second. He's helping them consider whether to get married or not, whether to, in fact, get married or not. And, and I'll give you a heads up, his advice is peculiar. His recommendations are a little bit shocking, they're a, a little bit strange. It represents what for some of us might be the complete opposite of what we think the advice should be. And, and I know that for many of us in, in singleness, it's, it's been a, a long process, a, a difficult process, a, a process of, of struggling and, and loneliness, sometimes painful. But what I hope to show you by unpacking this peculiar wisdom that Paul has for us today is that there is a key here that opens the door to a joyful, satisfied, beautiful experience with, with powerful and meaningful relationship for single people that Paul says even includes intimacy, and he uses the word happiness. And so if we lean into this peculiar wisdom, there's a key in here that'll unlock the door to that state for those of us 
who find themselves single right now. So let's just jump right into it and get to it. Um, We're going to read the passage that we have today. If you were in cohorts this week, you know our passage and you've already been playing with it a little bit. That's great. Um, And we're going to pick it up in verse 7. And then we're going to skip ahead after a few verses all the way to 25. We'll come back and finish up chapter 7 next week when Paul talks about married people and people who have been through divorce. Um, But this week we're going to be talking about what Paul says to single people, which is split up here. I'm pulling back to verse 7 because this is where Paul's thought on singleness really starts. All right, He starts like this. He says, I wish that all people were as I am. He's talking about his singleness. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. Now he's going to give a little bit of of advice to people who were once married. If your Bible says a word to the unmarried or some heading like mine does, just know that that wasn't necessarily, uh, Paul didn't write that. This is what editors coming in on the back end of the CSB, in my case, the NIV, whatever translation, they kind of put headings there to help you understand the content of each, each passage. Now, what I did, just to make it clear, for me, as I was wrapping my head around what Paul was doing, was I scratched out the word unmarried, and I just wrote once married. Once married. These two Greek terms that Paul is using here at the beginning of this, uh, of this kind of next, of these next two verses, the first two words are, they really have to do with people who are once married, and, and, and you'll see that here. He says, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry. Says it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Okay? Now, his advice is essentially the same for people who are not yet married. And to see that, we're going to turn over to verse 25. And if you want, my heading says, about the unmarried and widows. I crossed that out, and I said, about the not yet married. Um, And then widows, he talks about widows briefly in verses 39 and 40. That's just to help you guys understand the context here and a little bit of who's Paul is speaking to. Verse 25, now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited, so from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep, as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice, as they did not rejoice. Those who buy, as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world, as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy in both body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he's acting improperly towards the virgin he's engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. 
they can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. But then he who marries his fiancée does well, so then he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she, in, as she is, in my opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. All right. So a heavy passage we come to this week, and uniquely we come to it this week as two couples at Sedaris have gotten engaged. Congratulations to you guys. All right. Um, so we get to lean into this together. No, we're, we're so happy for you. Um, and as we saw here, Paul says marriage is a good thing, and it is a good thing for many people. Uh, so um, I have three introductory remarks that I want to lean into before we actually roll up our sleeves and unpack what Paul is saying here. Okay. Um, the first is I want to make, aware, make you guys aware, because you might not know this, that singleness, and, and that's like pervading, pervasive, prolonged, enduring, lasting singleness— was a very real, prevalent reality in the first century. In the first century. And there are a couple of factors that actually contributed to this, actually. The first of which is um, a, a lot of the pagan uh, religions would practice polygamy. Okay? That's where a man would have multiple wives, and it was never the other way around. So women never really got a full shake in, in polygamy back in the day. Uh, but a man could have multiple wives, and if you just do the math... A 50-50 gender where one man has two wives means one man cannot have a wife. You see that? Okay, so, so you have a lower amount of, of women actually available to be married to men. And this actually led to all sorts of other, um, uh, uh, like sexual abuse, I guess you could say. Sexual abuse is probably too strong of a word, but uh, sexual practices, sorry. Sexual practices in society like prostitution that would take even more women out of the pool to be married. And so you kind of have this feeding uh, low count of women uh, that are around for that reason. Um, but then also, uh, death and childbirth for women was very, very common. Historians put it at about 25 out of 1,000 births would result in death, um, which is 100 times more likely than today, um, which means that it's about 5 to 10% of women would die in childbirth back then. Okay, so, so you have a very low account number of women in society, and historically, this would be kind of made up for with um, war, men dying on the battlefield. Uh, but Paul's writing this in 53, 54 AD, we think, um, in time when the Roman Empire is experiencing the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There had not been a battle since 27 BC. Okay, so we're 80 years into... No men dying in war, really. And that's a, a, a Pax Romana. That would go all the, it's going to go all the way to 180 AD, so there's still 130 more years of this. So that's just to say that singleness, well, just, if you just look at the counts of the men-to-women ratio, was very common in the first century. All right? um, and then the second thing I, I want to uh, point out is there's been a lot of consideration surrounding Paul's own relationship history to marriage that comes from these verses. He's not married. You know, in verse 7, he says, I wish that all people were as I am. I wish all people were single. But then again, he says it in verse 8 to the once marrieds. He says that they should remain as I am. And you know where that phrase doesn't pop up? When he's talking to those who had not yet been married. He doesn't say, you should remain as I am. 
You see, there's actually more and more of a growing consensus that Paul himself is a guy that was once married, perhaps widowed. And that actually makes a lot of sense when we read verses 25 through 35 here, when when Paul is talking to the not yet married. He says, I'm trying to spare you. I, I want you to be without concerns. I'm saying this for your benefit. She's happier if she remains as she is. It seems that he has some significant insider knowledge on marriage here. Now, this isn't conclusive in any way, but I'm convinced more than I ever have been before that this guy may have been married, okay? So we can really lean into him, perhaps, for just some expertise. It's not someone who's been single his whole life talking about singleness and what married life is like, but someone who perhaps has experienced both states of married and single life. And this brings us to our third point. Um, Paul prefaces his stance on remaining single as his opinion, right? Right there in verse 25, he says, it's my opinion. Down in verse 480, again, he says, in my opinion. What does he do each time right after that? He puts a little phrase right after his opinion. He says, in my opinion, as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Or you could translate that trustworthy. The, the second one, he says, uh, she is, in my opinion, or if she, she's happier, she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Um, as we started this church uh, and have been reaching people in their 20s and their 30s, we, we've received a common request that goes like this. Um, I'd really like an older mentor. I'd really love an older mentor, and, and I can't really find that here. And that's that's True, it's less true than it's ever been. Praise God. Um, time and time again, we, we've heard this, though. I, I, want a, I want a faithful, trustworthy person who has experience and perspective in the Spirit of God to give me advice on how to live my life, primarily when it comes to career and relationships. Well, he, here you go. Whenever you come across a seasoned, experienced, trustworthy, spirit-filled disciple of Jesus, you should take their opinions very, very seriously. Very, very seriously. And and this is true even more so if God has established them as an apostle and sealed their opinion in Scripture. Okay? So I'll concede the point that, hey, this is an opinion, but it is sealed in Scripture. We want wise people with lots of perspective to help us out. So let's give Paul a shot. Shall we? Shall we? Great. All right, so with that said, this is how we're going to consider Paul's opinion this morning. First, we're going to look at his reasoning. We're going to look at this argument that he lays out, verse 25 through 35. Um, Then we're going to talk about this gift that he mentions in verse 7. What's this gift all about? One person has this gift, another has that. Um, And and then thirdly, um, we're going to talk about who it applies to. Who does it apply to? Who gets this gift? Who gets this gift? And I'm sorry, we're going to start with his reasoning. Um, and if you're single, I know perhaps the burning question on your mind when it comes to this passage is, does it apply to me? Does this passage apply to me? What does it mean to burn with desire? Or my translation says passion. What, does this really apply to me? And, and I'm sorry, but you're just going to have to put that on hold. We're going to get to it. But there's some other stuff we have to see first before we answer that question, okay? We're going to get there. But we're, we're going to look at his argument first because it's very, very strange. 
It's very strange which is what's going on in 1 Corinthians 7, especially in light of what's already come from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Well, in verses 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 7, he just said that, that, that a piece of marriage is to provide a place for sexual expression so that followers of Jesus don't look elsewhere for sex. Now, we talked about that last week, that this is not the only thing that marriage does. This is a very, if we were to say that, that would be a very one-dimensional view of marriage. Dave provided a list of several things that, that marriage does, including things that Paul himself talks about later, okay? Uh, like companionship, procreation, even picturing the gospel itself. Paul writes about all that uh, in Ephesians. But, but he just said here that marriage provides the only avenue for God's people to feed their sexual desire. And then he says that people who burn with desire should then get married, right? And, and then we would expect him to tell all Corinthian singles to get married. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? The Christians in Corinth are clearly struggling with sexual immorality. Just read the, first, the last couple chapters. Yikes. We've been unpacking together. That's some intense stuff. But he doesn't tell them to get married. He advises them to stay single if they can. They should consider this. So, so what's going on here? Like, this is so peculiar, is it not? This is strange. We expect him to say the exact opposite. What if it is that Paul's full goal, it's just part of his goal, isn't that people flee sexual immorality? Maybe that's just part of what Paul's goal is for the believers at Corinth. And I think we see his fuller goal as we go through his argument. All right, so he has, there's kind of three prongs to this argument. Uh, lots of threes today. Three prongs to this argument. The first was in verse 25, 26. He says, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, present distress, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. That's really interesting. This present distress. What, what is he talking about here? Well, the, the general consensus is that Paul was talking about circumstances that were present in the first century. And the two leading contenders are famine, persecution. Uh, famine would obviously make it difficult to provide for your spouse and, and, and provide for your family. And, and persecution, because if you got snatched up and, and put in prison or even killed, it would be a very difficult life for your spouse being alone with kids. You know, so, so there's, this, there's this increased difficulty that, that the, scenario, like the scenario and circumstance of the first century was putting on Christian believers. Now, does this affect us? Not really. We, we have religious freedom, and, and well, that the government actually provides tax breaks, tax breaks for the marriage, right? So this really doesn't apply to us. Present distress, this part of the argument doesn't really apply to us at least not now. Maybe later. Maybe later. At, the, at least not now. So let's look at a second point. Uh, verses 29. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wise, wives should be as though they had none. He gives a couple other examples. And he closes with this. For this world in its current form is passing away. What does he mean here? Now, he can't mean this completely, literally, that those with wives should live as though they had none because he just told those with wives and those with husbands that they have significant responsibilities that they do hold for one another in verses 1 through 6. He made that very, very, very clear. So, so, so what is he talking about here? Well, often a good step 
next step is to say, hey, did Jesus talk about this at all? Did Jesus talk about singleness at all? Did he talk about that in, in the context that Paul's talking about it in terms of everlasting life and eternity? Well, he did. He did. This is in Matthew 22. I'm just going to paraphrase this interaction that he had for you. The Sadducees come up to Jesus. These are like the political leaders of the day, um, of Jesus' time. And, and they have the beef with the resurrection. They, they can't, in their minds, can fathom how the resurrection can be true. So they're like, we've got to trick Jesus and show him how ridiculous this resurrection idea is that he's talking about. This is ridiculous, Jesus. Um, and, and so they say, okay, so a, a man had a wife, but he died. And so then this woman married another man, as is completely permissible in, in the law that we've been given by God. But then that man died. And this happened to her seven times. Now Jesus, in the resurrection, when all of us are back alive again, who's her husband? Are we going to have seven dudes fighting over this chick? Like, that's what they're asking. <laughs> like, your, your idea of the resurrection is crazy. And Jesus says this, you know, you're mistaken because you understand neither the scriptures or the power of God. Yikes. That's like, I hate to have Jesus say that to me. That'd be rough. You're mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they, that's humans, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven with regards to their relational status. So, so, so here's the rub, Jesus says, and Paul's picking up on this for sure. The marriage relationship is not everlasting. It ceases upon death. Perhaps your friendship and companionship con continues in some way, but the marriage covenant does not. Marriage in its current form is passing away. Paul is saying prioritize the covenantal relationship that persists into eternity. Don't trick yourself into thinking the marriage covenant is an eternal one. It's not. It's not an enduring one. What is he trying to guard the single person from here? Making marriage an idol. A, a good definition of idolatry is taking the good things that God gives us and making them ultimate things. Making them ultimate things. That is conceiving of the marriage relationship as, as the best, most significant, ultimate relationship that someone can experience in their life. It falls way short of relationship with God. Way short. I've been married 12 years. Way short of relationship with God. Christy would tell you that too. Way short of my relationship with God. Our covenant with God through the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus, it's founded on way more significant of a love. It's with way more powerful of a person. It's, with, and it's on an infinitely longer time frame. Marriage pales in comparison to this relationship, is what Paul's saying. Everything we have now is to be held loosely. He goes into all these examples. He's like, it's just like everything else we hold. Held, hold it loosely, which is exactly what we as fallen human beings, we struggle to do the most. This is a, there's like a subtle check yourself in here for married folks. This warning for idolatry goes for us too. It really does. Do you know what one of the sneakiest, Idols that can creep into your life, sneakier than power, sex, vanity, greed, pride, hatred, control, those things are pretty easy to poke at, point at. Your spouse, taking the good thing that God has given you and making it an ultimate thing, an ultimate thing. 
What are some questions you can have to investigate this? Um, well, who are you more concerned to spend quality time with? Simple. Who are you more concerned to spend quality time with? Honestly, answer that question. Who are you more likely to serve? Who are you more likely to listen to? Who are you more likely to give to? The idolization of spouse is one of the major ailments of the Western church. The Western church held marriage up as this ultimate thing to attain for so long. It's a relic that is with us to this day. It's a relic. It's such an ailment of the Western church. If you're working harder to create and maintain romance with your spouse instead of an abiding relationship with Christ, something's broken. Something's broken. That that romance is passing away. Something's broken. Okay, so let's keep moving in this argument here. Paul's third point, verse 32. Verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And he says that a spouse's interests are divided between the Lord and their spouse. This is a goes through the whole thing for men, and he goes through the whole reasoning for women. He says, and it's the same for both of them. It's the same for both of them. Why? Because they have a list of responsibilities they must do for one another, essentially, to keep them happy. And it takes so much energy. It takes so much time. It takes so much energy to avoid conflict in your marriage. It does. And and when fights do happen, it takes so much energy to bring forgiveness and reconciliation to it. So much energy. Do you know how much time and energy Christy has to invest to keep me happy? (laughs) It's a lot. It's, It's a lot. The marriage relationship, well, well, having the opportunity to to picture God's relationship with with humans in in a beautiful way, it takes a ton of work. It takes so much work. It's meant to to picture a relationship of work. Do you know how much work God put in to make his relationship right with us? Culminating on the cross? A ton. A ton. It's meant to picture that. It demands a lot of hard work. It demands a ton of submission. It demands a ton of time. Nothing is more counterintuitive to the human spirit than submission. Nothing. Paul labels that all all that marriage work that married couples do, they have to do, they have to do it. God's tasked them with it. God has tasked them with it. God says, you're on the, or Paul says, you're on the hook to do this work. What does he call it, though? It's down in verse 35, all this work. It says, I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without what? Distraction. Work, marriage, work, working on your marriage is a distraction? I don't want it to say that. I looked in the Greek, so I wouldn't say that turns out that's exactly what it says. He calls it a distraction to godly devotion. He's pointing to this simple reality. There's only so much time in the day. Now, your devotion to your spouse can be, ex- can be an example of your godly devotion, but it's not the same thing. It's not, this, it's not the thing as being directly devoted to God. He calls it a distraction. Now, we might say, sheesh, Paul's ex-wife must have been really demanding 
Well, maybe, but I'll tell you this. After conversations I've had with all my friends, conversations that I've had with premarital couples, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, marital counseling, I've done some marital counseling. After all those conversations I've had, um, Christy and I are probably the lowest maintenance people in marriage that I know of. We're very independent creatures, perhaps even to a fault, okay? I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this to say, and it's still a lot of work. It's still so much work. We still hold a lot of concerns that we must hold for one another to be faithful to God and to avoid conflict. There's no getting around it. Paul says this, I'm trying to spare you. I'm trying to make you free from concerns. I'm saying this for your benefit. I want you to be free from anxiety, cares, worries, so you can be devoted to Jesus Christ. She's happier if she remains single. On the one hand, and this is a weird paradox and conundrum, on the one hand, Christianity has the highest view of the beauty of marriage. It, it does. Retaining the equality between genders, it's, it's, it's the highest view out there that you can find between husbands and wives. It's so beautiful. And we have Paul's comments elsewhere to thank for that. And then on the other hand, the Christian faith can hardly be more positive about the single life. Jesus Christ himself refused to take on the concerns and cares of marriage because time was short. He did it so that he could have the sole focus of devotion to his father and to his mission for us, for us. So it's for these reasons that Paul says God empowers people in the midst of this state of singleness, okay? So now let's move on. Let's, let's talk about the discussion of what this gift really is that God empowers towards, Okay? Verse 7, I wish that all people were as I am, Paul says, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. What is he talking about here? What's his gift he's referring to? An uncareful and perhaps quick um, assessment of this passage would force the conclusion, oh, he's talking about the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. Have you thought this before? Have you heard this before? Have you heard this from my mouth before? I've said this a lot. I don't think this is, the gift of singleness is actually what Paul's talking about here. Uh, I, I've talked about it this way in the past. Well, I'm not quite sure that's what he's talking about. I think he doesn't really, he's not talking about the gifts of marriage, gifts of singleness, which is good actually because I think that's almost a slap in the face to single people to say, hey, you got the gift of singleness. It's like, sheesh, thanks. Didn't choose this. Doesn't feel like I chose this. Like, you know? So I think it's good that I don't think singleness is actually the gift because it actually comes off cringy. Um, singleness isn't so much a gift. It's just a relational state that we're all born into, no matter what. It's just something you're in that we, we feel like we don't have a lot of control over. It's, it's simply the absence of a romantic partner. And in the same way, marriage is just a state. It's the presence of a committed romantic partner. All of us are born into this state of singleness. Now, don't get me wrong, though. All things are from God. You can still call your marriage a gift. You can still call your spouse a gift. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what are the gifts that Paul has in mind here? If we look at the context, he's talking about sexual immorality, and he's talking about the gifts that God gives, that God gives. So he's not talking about di- like a disposition that someone's born with. He's talking about the gifts that God gives in order to meet human sexual desire. And the gift in marriage, he's just said in verses 1 through 6, is sex. And the, the, the gift in singleness is his gift of celibacy. Celibacy. Celibacy is the gift. 
It's talking about the gifts that God gives to satisfy our desires, which empowers us to live lives that display who he is in in the world, you know? Um, This, in fact, is a product of the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that, that we'll talk about a little bit more today. The good news. The gospel comes to humanity and points at our broken desires not necessarily to shame us. Well, it actually points out the, the broken expression of those desires, not necessarily to shame us, but to help us identify them. It provides us the forgiveness for, those broken, for that brokenness through the death of Jesus. And then it promises, it's not done yet, then it promises, hey, God says, I'm going to meet your desires that you have. That's why it's good news. God is coming to earth to meet all of the desires within humans that he placed within us. These desires aren't bad. He placed them within us. And when the kingdom comes in full, okay, so God is all about the kingdom coming to earth now. He meets our desires now in a lot of significant ways. And when the kingdom comes in full in the future, we're going to have all human desire fully met. And what happens then? Everybody gets the gift of celibacy. All of us get it. And so having it now is actually a first fruit of the full coming kingdom of God. This is why I say the Bible couldn't possibly be more positive about the single experience here. It's a first fruit of the coming kingdom of God. All of us are going to get it eventually. Some people get it now. Some people get it, get it now. Jesus' picture of eternity is one that's absent sex. Celibacy is the gift. It's pretty crazy when most men that create Religion, what do they build into it? Endless sex. Islam, Mormonism in the strangest way. Jesus couldn't be any more opposite. It's difficult to see how a book could be any more positive about the celibate life. God comes to the world and exemplifies not just any life, single life. Starts his ministry when he's 30. They're getting married in their teens. Could have had 15 years of marriage. Nope. I need to be fully devoted to my father. Jesus said. That's what it's all about. And for a religion that's all about becoming like Christ, all of us will be like him in his singleness and eternity, Paul would argue. And that those of us who are single now should consider deeply the opportunity to continue being like him in this way, even now, as a picture of the coming kingdom of God. So the gift of celibacy is God himself providing the satisfaction for all the desires that marriage actually meets. All those desires. I I, I didn't say celibacy eliminates those desires. It meets them. It meets them. It does. It, It meets them. The choice between sex, the gift of sex, and the gift of celibacy is not the choice between intimacy and loneliness. That's not the choice that's out there. Because God meets our desires for intimacy through the gift of celibacy. God meets our desires for companionship, our desires even for children and family. Marriage is not the sole answer to the the observation, it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage isn't the only answer there. In spring of 2008, I found myself single, which hasn't happened very often in my life. of course, I had always wanted to be married. In fact, I had always been in a romantic relationship since like the age of 15. 
you know, very small time in between, um, which infuriated some women, actually. But always in a relationship, but, but when I came out and out of a relationship in 2008, it was different. I looked at God and I, saw, I said this, I said, God, I'm gonna pursue your kingdom in this world, not my own pleasures and not my own wants. I'd recently really been exposed to his gospel, perhaps uh, in the truest way for the first time in my life. And I said, I'm gonna pursue your kingdom and, and, and not my own wants and desires. And I see in your scripture here that you say that for anybody who prioritizes you, that you follow up with everything they need to live a full, satisfying life. So I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna trust you at your word, which is essentially the definition of what it means to be a Christian. I'm gonna trust you at your word. You said it's not good for me to be alone, but you said that you can also satisfy me. So I'm gonna lean into it. So I related to him like it was true. I lived my life like it was true. And over the course of the next nine months or so, I grew like crazy. My relationship with God went deep. I had incredible times in the word, in prayer. I prayed that prayer often, to be honest. Often. I had great and meaningful relationships. I had great and meaningful ministry placed before me, work that God wanted me to do, had for me to do for his kingdom. And God, by his power, met in that time, met my desires for intimacy, for companionship. I was deeply involved in Christian community and experiencing the blessing of it. I had more self-control, more patience than ever before. It's truly one of the most beautiful and amazing chapters of my life. I look back on it with only fondness. It was difficult, but it was so beautiful. But what did I do? What was I doing with that prayer that I prayed a lot? I was asking God to give me the gift of celibacy. I didn't have that language then, but that's exactly what I was doing. God, give me celibacy. I was asking God to meet my desires for intimacy, companionship, relational meaning and purpose and connection in other ways than marriage, and he gave it. Why? Because he promises to. He promises to. Jesus says this in in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Go ahead and throw it up on the screen there for us. Awesome. He says this. "Um, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a... um, What do you think? Snake, yeah. I heard some snakes out there. You guys know your Bibles. That's great. Love it. If you then, who are evil, know how much to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? good things to those who ask him. Have you tried asking for celibacy before? It's an intense prayer. Sure. How, did it, how did it go? Have you prayed versions of that prayer? I've been asking people that over the course of this week. And they said yes, and they found hope. Now here's the deal. Singleness isn't the gift, it's a state. And it's usually a state that we don't feel like we have much control over, am I right? But, but if you want it to be a blessed state, for however long you're in it, a month, 
a year, a decade, the rest of your life, if you want it to be a blessed state, you have to ask God for celibacy in the midst of it. You have to. The gospel presents you with the opportunity to turn your miserable singleness into blessed singleness, into satisfied singleness, even happy singleness. So, so when you find yourself in the state of singleness, you must cry out to God, God, give me more celibacy. I need it which means God satisfy my desires for companionship and intimacy in you and in the body of Christ, my Christian brothers and sisters. Give me increased self-control. I need it. Give me increased patience. Give me your spirit. I need it to flourish. Celibacy is a gift that's not a binary thing. It's, it's not a binary thing. Only the gift of salvation is really a binary thing in the scriptures. The gift of celibacy is just like all the other gifts. It's incremental. It can be grown. The gift of romantic love within marriage, for instance, is incremental. It can be grown. If, if you feel like you're in a miserable state of marriage, what do you do? You pray to God and ask him to give you the gift of additional romantic intimacy in your marriage. That's what you do. All the other gifts of, of, of the church are like this as well. Why do we think of celibacy as like God waving a magic wand over somebody? No, it's not like that. It's incremental. Think of all the gifts of God in Scripture. Wisdom, knowledge, revelation, the fruit of the Spirit. These are all incremental things. Serving, leadership, healing, discernment, prophecy. These are all incremental gifts. God gives them, and we grow in them over the course of our lives as we ask for more and more from God. We give them an increasing measure. Celibacy is the same way. Um, one, la- one last thing I'll say about celibacy before we move on to the, the burning with desire. Um, I, I want to make sure that we're excited about it for the right reason. Okay, God gives celibacy, Paul says, so that one might be fully devoted to the Lord. The goal of celibacy is not to be fully devoted to career, fully devoted to travel, fully devoted to other hobbies. Okay, do you see that? Now, in your soul devotion to the Lord, he may call you into those other things, like Paul got to see the world. It's pretty great. He did experience the prisons of the world, I suppose. You know, <laughs> he got to see the world. But, but just don't fall for the idols on the other side either. Don't pursue celibacy because you're really more concerned about the other ultimate things, which is either like not having kids or pursuing your career as well. So... So that, that's the last thing I'll say about, about that. Okay, now we come to the question, how can I know if I qualify as someone who burns with desire? How do I know if that's me? Um, I hope you see that I saved it to the end because it's not the most important question, right? It's, it's not the most important question. But it is important. It is important. Um, but we should all be asking for celibacy no matter what if we're single. No matter what. If you're single, that's what I want you walking away with. That's what I want you walking away with. Um, but but let, let's look at this together. Paul says, verse 8, or is it verse 9? But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Given the rest of his argument that we've already looked at, this is what I think he's saying. If your desire for marriage is bringing about so much introspection and attention and anxiety perhaps even obsession, uh, dwelling on it constantly, abundant sexual immorality as well. It, it's possibly a concern in your life that's even outpacing the concerns that you would have in marriage. 
And so for you to be more devoted to the Lord, you should get married. That's really what I think he's talking about here. He keeps it really short and simple in verses 8 and 9 of this, uh, partially because he's writing to once marrieds. They know the concerns of marriage. They can make this, this they, they, they can weigh that, they can put it on the scales pretty simply. But once marrieds, he's, he's, he's trying to tell them, hold on a sec here, marriage is going to be really, really hard. This is what I do in my premarital counseling, by the way, if you ever ask me to do your premarital counseling. It's a phrase called the destroying your idealistic distortion of marriage. That's, that's all Paul did, verses 25 through 35. It's hard. It's going to be hard. So if you're burning, if you can hardly not think about this, and, and Paul wouldn't have said this if there weren't people in this category, if this wasn't part of the human experience, don't feel shame, that's okay. He wouldn't have said it if it's not part of the human experience. If you would say that I can't not obsess over this, I can't not focus on it, then you should take steps towards marriage. Then you should take steps towards marriage. And, and here's the skinny. No matter what, you're going to need the gift of celibacy to do that. Not just to remain faithful to God, but also to rightly discern a good spouse. You will. Because do you know what happens if you lose self-control in romantic relationships and engage in physical acts of sex? That's going to attach you to someone. It just necessarily attaches humans together on a deep relational, emotional, perhaps even spiritual level. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 6. We just, we just talked about it. And you are not going to have the perspective you need in order to make a good judgment there. I've seen people who God has given the gift of celibacy to for a time, and they've decided to set that down to pursue a, a romantic, physical relationship, which has called into question, is this a good thing for you to be in all the time? I'm not sure. Don't do that. You forfeit your ability to really discern a good spouse. You forfeit an objective seat, and that happens. And then there's another side that goes like this. If, if, if this is you and you say, I can't stop thinking about marriage, um, I don't have self-control over my thoughts to stop obsessing about it. One thing that we must do is likewise lower our standards. Well, I don't, I don't want to say lower our standards, but actually decide which standards are actually important for marriage. Which ones are actually important for marriage? Look at your list. Deeply consider it. Which things are penny, or penny, petty, carnal, temporary? Which things are godly, spiritual, and lasting? You should deeply consider discarding things like career, finances, their possessions, hobbies, their looks. Now, now if you can't relate with this person, move on, of course, I'm going to tell you, okay. You guys aren't a match. Do, do, you have to get married. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But, but time is short. Paul says the things of this world are passing away. So what should you prioritize? Prioritize their pursuit of God. Their pursuit of God, which presents in three primary ways. Their hunger for his word, his scriptures. Their relationship with him through prayer. And their valuation of the community of God, God's people. If they value those three things and, and are growing in them and, and are increasing in them, that is a great disciple of Jesus. That's a great follower of Jesus, worthy of any marriage. We're going to talk about, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
We're going to talk about this a little bit next week as we examine people who are married to people who weren't Christians. Because if those three things aren't true, your concerns in marriage are going to be massive. They're going to be massive. So let's all pursue the, the blessed state, the blessed state of whatever state God has us in. And, and if we're single, God wants to give you the gift of celibacy. You need it. He wants to satisfy your deep desire for intimacy that he placed within you but w- through his relationship with you and, his, and your relationship with his people. That's what he wants to do. Accepting it now doesn't mean you're going to hold it for your whole life, but it's a good, good gift. Ask for it. Let's pray.